term and podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the I, yeah. Uh, Paul, are you here? <laughs> this gets better and better. Uh, welcome back to the Curbsiders. We are starting now. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be here. And uh, tonight, uh, before I let you tell the audience about this show, I should tell the audience two things. Number one, Stuart Kent Brigham is not joining us tonight. And number two, we talked about perioperative medication management we went through definitely anticoagulation, antiplatelet agents, diabetes drugs, pretty much everything else that, that we could think of that is, is going to be high yield. But before we get to uh, that and our wonderful guest, Paul, can you tell them what this show is about and what we do on this show? Happy to, as always. Thanks so much. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we, of course, use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, no more so than tonight. Uh, with the great Dr. Avio Glasser talking to us about perioperative medicine, as Dr. Wado alluded to. So as a refresher, uh, Dr. O'Glasser is an associate professor of medicine at Oregon Health Sciences, Oregon Health and Science University. Within the Division of Hospital Medicine, she has been at OHSU since completing medical school at Jefferson Medical College and making the cross-country trek for internal medicine residency. She has been a member of OHSU's preoperative medicine clinic since graduating from residency, and she became the clinic's assistant medical director in 2012 and then became its medical director earlier this year. She is active within the multidisciplinary perioperative medicine community, including sitting on the communications committee for the Society for Perioperative Assessment and Quality Improvement, um, <laughs> otherwise known as SPECI. At least I hope that's what they call it. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go for the acronym there. <laughs> Just throw it out there like I knew what it was. Um, <laughs> and she also sits on the meeting planning committee for its annual conference, the Perioperative Medicine Summit. She enjoys speaking and writing about a multitude of perioperative medicine subjects, including writing a guest blog post about perioperative ACE inhibitors for Neff Madness 2019, which earned this year's Best Blog Post Award. At OHSU, she is also the Internal Medicine Residency's Assistant Program Director for Scholarship and Social Media, where she pursues her passion for promoting resident and student scholarship and mentorship, especially through novel and non-traditional scholarship, and by teaching, promoting, and publishing on the use of hashtag MedTwitter. Uh, Dr. Glasser is also active with the ACP at the national and Oregon chapter level, including sitting on the National Council of Early Career Physicians. She can be found on Twitter at, at AOGlasser. Uh, and without further ado, the great Dr. Avi O'Glasser. Well, Avi, you're back. Thank okay. you. Thank you for coming back. We have a lot of unfinished business here when it comes to perioperative medications. And uh, before we do that, why don't you remind the audience a little bit about yourself? All right. I said to shake up the, the intro a little bit. So I'm now a 38-year-old. Um, Loud and proud resident of the Pacific Northwest, um, a hospitalist who practices almost primarily in the outpatient setting, um, managed to make my way out to this corner of the country by way of Jersey and Philly and Chicago. Um, I'm raising two little boys with my husband, who's a lawyer. And um, oh, gosh, a little bit about life outside of medicine. Um, I enjoy listening to podcasts while walking my two-year-old Labradoodle, Matilda, um, and commuting via the Portland Aerial Tram. And um, my husband and I are into extreme cake decorating for family birthdays. 
Yes, Paul and I got to see some of that. <laughs> we were we were we had the pleasure of seeing you in person in Portland recently and That's true. and seeing pictures on your phone of your was it an otter cake that I saw? It was a sea otter. It was. Cake, yeah. <laughs> I actually tweeted a picture of it too. I I let the the personal side creep into Twitter occasionally. Well, see, still keeping my kids as anonymous as possible, but the otter cake had to make an appearance. Paul, I'll leave it to you. Do you have any any questions, or you want to just jump to pick of the week? I, I say let's go right for the picks of the week. All right, why don't you why don't you start us off, and Avi, you can have some time to think about yours. Yeah, I'm excited because I actually have one. Usually, these are preceded by me frantically scanning my bookshelf or trying to think of what I saw last week. But I actually I have a hearty recommend. I'm gonna my pick of the week this week is the movie Crawl. Uh, not 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 crawl with the stupid blade made in the 1980s, but crawl the 2019 disaster horror movie directed by Alejandro Aja that um, is about a young woman who's um, an athlete and a swimmer who goes to check on her father during a hurricane and then become beset by alligators that are sort of loosed upon the state of Florida, and it's basically just them sort of fending off these gigantic alligators and they're just being terrorized and trying to get away from them, and it is. A meticulously made, like it's a lot of fun. It's a really well crafted movie. It would make a great double feature with, um, oh gosh, I'm now blanking one. <laughs> the, the Shallows, my <laughs> wife yells from the other room. Uh, the Shallows, the the shark movie that I think I recommended previously. So a really great summer horror movie if you like that kind of thing. So I would recommend Crawl, directed by Alejandra Aja and starring uh, Barry Pepper, because who doesn't want more Barry Pepper in their life? Um, <laughs> as well as uh, K.S. Delario. Always impressive, Paul. Your movie—I really feel like you could have just been a movie critic in another in another life. I'm still waiting for someone to offer me the job, and then I'll be done with this nonsense forever. <laughs> or maybe in this life, maybe maybe this is you being a movie critic, Paul. <laughs> this might be it. This might be as far as I go. It, it's like a show within a show. Uh, I'm just going to pull up on my phone the name of. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name. So I there, there's a podcast that I listen to from time to time. It was recently recommended to me by a friend. Uh, it's the Rich Roll podcast. He's a an ultra endurance athlete who's also like a vegan and has all these kind of lifestyle related guests on. And since, uh, as one of our prior guests pointed out, we don't really get much training in nutrition and lifestyle in medical school. I've been kind of like geeking out on some of these podcasts. And in the longevity space, there's two that I think people should listen to. One of the guests he had on was this guy, David Sinclair, who's a longevity researcher, and the other is Walter Longo, V-A-L-T-E-R-L-O-N-G-O. And uh, what these gentlemen have to say about uh, longevity and fasting and trying to push the kind of push the healthy human lifespan, the functional healthy human lifespan forward by like 30, 40 years is, is pretty exciting. And uh, may, maybe it's attainable. I don't know. But uh, check it out. Sorry, what's the name of the host? Rich Roll. It's not Rick Roll. That's what I thought I was, when I first heard about it. <laughs> do, you, do they comment at any point that that's Rick Roll? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I'm tempted to uh, put some dummy links in there when I link to this in the show notes <laughs> and just Rick Roll the whole audience with their. <laughs> wow. Yes. Uh, Avi, all right. Last but not least. Um, I think I'm going to go in a little bit more. Um, dare I say profound, but, but deep and meaningful uh, direction. I just started reading Melinda Gates's A Moment of Lift. Um, I, it was recommended to me maybe at a trivia night about a month or two ago, but I just got it about two thirds of the way through. Uh, it is fantastic. 
Um, so it's Melinda Gates talking about her experience uh, traveling the world and doing this incredible advocacy and outreach and research through the Gates Foundation. Um, with with the, the premise of the title is that we need to lift women. And when we lift, lift women, we lift all of society and all of humanity. But really does the, some just absolutely incredible deep dives into uh, the origins and sustaining factors of, of poverty and, and inequity and inequality. Um, there are a lot of overlapping themes, both for the, the women in medicine discussions, including the women in medicine discussions you've been having on this show, as well as discussions about social determinants of health. Where does education, where do living conditions, where do sustainable agriculture um, uh, where does maternal fetal mortality come into um, the factors that keep people in poverty around the globe? So uh, I can't wait to finish it. I don't know if I'll get to it tonight, but it, it's it's a page turner. It's hard to put down and just really inspiring and eye-opening. And so you're positing that's a more serious recommendation than a movie about alligator attacks. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Maybe I implied it, but I didn't say that. Well, Paul, with that brilliant transition, uh, why don't why don't you take us into the discussion about perioper- perioperative medications here? Sure. And I guess, do we want to start with a case or do we just want some of uh, Avi's general background tips for perioperative medicine before we get rolling into a case? Yeah, actually, good point. Uh, I'm I'm forgetting how the show works. Yeah, we 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 thought we planned this ahead of time. Yes, Avi, why don't we talked about this? Why don't you give us some of these overarching themes that are going to kind of lead us into the? We have three cases tonight, which uh, we're going to try our best to get to all three of them. We're going to do it. So um, to take a big step back, and we were chatting about this beforehand. Like, why are we ta- Why are we devoting a whole episode to perioperative medication management? I think there's a lot of reflections that this is a the source of anxiety, especially for for provide for clinicians who aren't doing a lot of pre-op care either in the outpatient primary care setting or in in the inpatient setting, or even in uh, like a small dedicated pre-op clinic setting. Um, but there's there's a lot of structure, there's a lot of guidelines, a lot of what I hope we talk about tonight will pull on major themes. I, I think I had two mantras that I shared uh, in our prior episode together. The first one is um, our role in pre-op is to quantify and qualify the known comorbid conditions. So really tell me about this patient, paint a narrative, tell me the burden of their comorbid condition and help me understand their risk and how I can optimize and give them patient-centered care, including individualized pre-op plans, intra-op plans, and post-op plans. And then the second mantra was this patient for this surgery, for this indication, with this surgeon... Um, for at this time, and you can even throw in at this venue, which gets into ambulatory versus non-ambulatory surgery. So those those themes absolutely apply to, to the MedRec question. Um, I'll just start off by saying that MedRec is such a crucial, like an accurate medication reconciliation. You know, we're supposed to do that at every patient encounter. It's so crucial in the preoperative setting. Um, one of my one of my many soapboxes is the fact that I think as a profession we do a terrible job as at empowering patients to know their diagnoses. Like how many times has a patient come in and said, "Well, I don't have diabetes. The insulin I'm on has fixed it or cured it," or the patient says, "I don't have a heart condition. That's why I have a pacemaker." But other than keeping patients safe and knowing what they're on that might need to be managed or changed or held or dose adjusted in the perioperative arena. 
for me, like the med rec absolutely gives me clues to what diagnoses a patient might have or what testing I might need to pursue, even if they cannot recall a diagnosis. So you're on, you're on 120 of Lasix, BID. Uh, are you sure you don't have a heart condition? Um, or, or why are you on aspirin? Um, to scratch the surface of a theme that's never addressed on the show, is it for primary prevention? <laughs> is it for secondary prevention? And then I need to really figure out how I'm managing this in a safe, patient-centered way. So MedRec is crucial. I actually front-load my visits with a MedRec very, very early on because I just I got to get this all out in the open. Um, other big themes, I, I feel terrible. I totally forgot who said it this way. I want to say it may have been Karen Mock, who's from Mayo, and it may have been at like an ACP pre-course years ago. I don't know if it was her. But in the especially in the perioperative setting, include obviously over-the-counters and herbals, um, but include the elements of the social history or things that get pigeonholed to the social history. Ask about alcohol. Ask about uh, cannabinoids, marijuana, or CBD-containing compounds. Ask about the other illicits, because um, that will also factor into your profile of a patient in the preoperative setting. Um, what other soapbox do I want to get onto right now? Um, I think other big themes as we kind of launch into these discussions are going to be the concepts of, I really, 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 really want this medication in your system. And depending on the half-life, I really want it in your system on the morning of surgery itself. Or based on the risk profile of this medication or the surgery, I really do not want this medication in your system. Uh, and then there's probably the kind of the hodgepodge, like, it's really neither here nor there, but do you really want to take this when you're on an empty stomach? Like your multivitamin. Like, I don't want to take a multivitamin on an empty stomach because I'm just going to feel miserable for three hours. Uh, and then that will launch us into the question of, well, if we're talking about patients needing to be NPO after midnight, why are we even talking about what pills to take on the morning of surgery? So NPO does not apply to pills. It is safe. It is normal. And it is appropriate. And sometimes it's really the best thing to make sure that a patient has meds on board. So take this medication with a small sip of water, enough to get it down before you drive in and check in at 530 in the morning. So that's kind of how I stratify. Definitely want it on board. Definitely don't want it on board. And let's kind of figure out the gray zone in the middle. The, the NPO after midnight stuff. So you're saying meds with sips of water are okay. And you <laughs> told me that the consult guys have a really good uh, piece on this. Yeah, they did it as one of their in-session lectures. Gosh, at one of the ACP conferences, I think two or three years ago. I'm trying to like remember which conference or which, which convention center I was in when I heard it. It is one of their online modules, so hopefully we can you guys can we link can to link that. to that. Yeah, um, they do a great module on again what is the concept of NPO uh, and looking at the anesthesia society guidelines on the difference between NPO for solids or like a full fatty meal, which is going to delay gastric emptying, NPO to a light meal, and then NPO to clears. And what they specifically delved into was what what constitute clear liquids, uh, and pulled in changes to the guideline the anesthesia guideline that, um, and they basically they riffed off of how much milk do you have to pour into a cup of coffee for it to no longer be clear liquid. <laughs> so I, I think there was like a hypothetical case of someone who arrives for a colonoscopy and uh, took a sip of a latte rather than black coffee. 
that morning. So they kind of dispel them at the, like, how much content is too much stomach content and, and try to debunk some of these myths that gastric content is linked with aspiration risk. Um, and is it pH or is it volume? Um, so the guidelines, and, and you may not even, this is well-kept lore, I think, at a lot of institutions, but technically the guidelines say clear liquids until two hours before. Now, I think it, you've got to be really, really careful with giving perma- patients permission to do so because some people kind of misinterpret that or get confused. Um, and the clear liquids becomes a bowl of chicken noodle soup, which is not clear liquids. Um, or somebody's scheduled for an afternoon case, and they're told to anticipate an 11.30 check-in time, so they wake up and have an early breakfast, and then there's a cancellation, and they get called, and suddenly they're told to show up at 7, and they've got food in their stomach. So, yes, the guidelines are more nuanced than just NPO after midnight, but you still have to be careful with how you translate that for patients. But for the purposes of of what we're going to talk about, taking meds with a sip of water, you know, an ounce or two is what I tell patients at most, depending on their pill, like how many pills are swallowing, safe, appropriate. All right. Can I go back? Just you mentioned sort of making sure that you're doing a good social history sort of as part of medication reconciliation. And I just want to ask, because I'm not sure there's going to be another place to do it in, in this show. With medical marijuana becoming sort of increasingly prescribed and popular, and actually, I guess, access to recreational marijuana being coming sort of more of a thing, what what are we to do with that? How does that actually play into what you do perioperatively, if anything? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, and and I'm, I live in Oregon where recreational marijuana is legal. I think this is a big, big question mark. And I think even if you, you look at some of the banter on, on Twitter or at perioperative meetings, it's a huge uncertainty. Um, it comes up in the inhaled form. So is smoking marijuana as bad, better, worse than smoking a tobacco cigarette? Um, in terms of lung function, pulmonary function, and risk of respiratory complications, is an edible form safer or worse? Are you trying to keep people's pain under control? Are you worried that they're going to need different doses of the anesthetic material? All valid questions, and I don't think we really know. I, my practice, again, I'm in a state where recreational marijuana is legal. I tell people to avoid in the 24 hours before surgery as much as possible. Because I say, and I say, I just don't know. We don't have data. I'd rather you be safe than expose yourself to unnecessary harm. Hopefully we'll know more in a few years. But right now, I'd like to tell you to skip it the night before surgery. Um, somebody who's on topical CBD, because that's really, really popular too. Sure. I, I don't know. I don't have the data. I would think that the topical form is probably safer. Uh, we're also telling people to do skin prep. So like either um, hypocly- uh, chlorhexidine showers the night before surgery. So we're telling people to kind of keep ointments, lotions off their skin anyway. So I kind of give patients that caveat. Like if you're going to try to minimize use, that's the night to try to minimize your use. <laughs> sure. Well, Paul, with that, why don't you take us into case one, which I apologize, Paul, but I don't think it has anything about marijuana in it. I know that's kind of your thing, but... It's kind of my thing, but at least you included just a name that pains me to read out loud. So <laughs> let's... Avi wrote this, actually, so... Obviously. No. <laughs> no, I felt like you were just insisting on me reading it just because you knew it would hurt me, but... I, well, that is right. why I insisted that I didn't write... <laughs> I'm just saying I didn't write it. <laughs> sure, fair. All right, well, let's talk about Ms. Nita Bridge. Uh so Ms. Nita Bredge is a 66-year-old woman. She's scheduled for an elective total hip arthroplasty for end-stage arthritis due to rheumatoid arthritis. Her medical history is also significant for a paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and OSA on CPAP. 
Our med package currently includes methotrexate once weekly on Fridays, adalimumab, amiodarone, apixaban 5 milligrams BID, fish oil 2,000 milligrams daily, and vitamin E 400 international units daily. She recalls a time when she used to be on warfarin and even several surgeries years ago when she took, quote, these expensive painful blood thinner shots I need to give myself in the stomach, end quote, before and after surgeries. She also excitedly shares that her surgeon told her, I don't even need to use general anesthesia. We can use spinal or an epidural, but you really need to make sure you have the correct stop date for your apixaban. So this is this is the sad case of Ms. Bredge. Um, and it's sad. <laughs> it's, well, depending on how it goes, I suppose, and whether or not we decide to actually bridge her DOAC or not, which I think is actually the question at hand here. So I, I think starting out, the, the obvious question, the question that she's asking you, even though there's other stuff to address, obviously, is should we be bridging this patient uh, for her anticoagulation? Yes, that that's the money question. I think bridge or not bridge is one of the most common questions that comes up with perioperative medication management. And I think one of the biggest sources of consternation and confusion, um, and certainly one of the biggest questions that I see communicated to me, like when, when patients are referred to the, the pre-op clinic at Cashlock Northwest. Um, there's been so much interesting information about bridging in general in the last few years. I got to tell you, so I've been in the pre-op clinic for just over nine years it, the, our practice patterns have so changed, and I'm going to say changed in a very encouraging way based on expansion of the literature. I mean, I think we talk about medical reversal and, you know, head spinning and watching a ping pong match. We really have much better data about the safety of bridging or, or the lack thereof um, to, to guide us. And uh, 2017 ACC guidelines um, that are actually pretty blunt. So, so in a nutshell, bridging is dead. Um, there was the, and I'm talking about bridging for, for warfarin. We're not, this is, I'm not even getting to the DOACs yet. Um, data, so what's the, what's the background? So the concern would, would be you have somebody who's anticoagulated for whatever reason. And generally you think of, uh, atrial fibrillation to prevent stroke risk, um, VTE, either recent or chronic anti chronic lifelong anticoagulation or mechanical valves. Um, and the risk, you, it, what's the risk benefit? I'm kind of like doing a seesaw motion with my hands that the risk of an embolic event in the period of time where they're holding their anticoagulant is v- versus the risk of bleeding. And especially with anoxaparin on the scene, I think people got very enthused that we can bridge you off of your warfarin. Um, but ultimately, the data has come to reveal that bridging does not decrease thromboembolic risk and only increases bleeding risk. Um, Chris, the Chimanchu, uh, uh, very helpfully threw out the bruise study on, on Twitter when we were bantering today before the recording. Um, there was the bridge trial. I think that was a few years ago at this point. Um, and so the bruise, the bruise study looked at um, pacer, pacemaker pocket hematoma formation. So people who are getting pacemakers, so people with cardiac histories. Um, and if they were bridged off of their warfarin, they had more bleeding complications. Um, so actually keeping people anticoagulated was safer for these procedures, you know, relatively superficial procedures. So, um, along comes 2017, uh, ACC guidelines, um, for anticoagulation in the setting of AFib. And it's a great paper to have at your fingertips. It's got great visuals, really, really fantastic flow diagrams. 
that walk you through how to manage patients, and it includes both warfarin and the DOAX, so the, the direct oral anticoagulants. Um, it actually really backtracks, as, as we talked about here, it backtracks, and the first part of the, the manuscript or the, the publication says, step number one is to decide if anticoagulation even needs to be interrupted. So kind of challenges the assumption that anytime you're having a procedure or surgery, you have to stop anticoagulation. So breaks it down by bleeding risk, high bleeding risk, intermediate bleeding risk, low bleeding risk, or, or even indeterminate. Uh, and there are a lot of procedures that we're not stopping anticoagulation for. So then, then you're continuing, or maybe you're continuing kind of at the lower end of their therapeutic range. Um, the, the dental societies do a fantastic job of working with these recommendations. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it here. Yeah, can or not, you give us a, just a couple yeah. examples? Like I, I think just high yield ones. We don't have to go through every case. But yeah. For what are some of the low risk things that might come across? You know, uh, the general internist, especially in the office, that 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 don't warrant holding anticoagulation. Um, so kind of literally going head to toe, uh, cataracts. Cataract surgery does not bleed. Patients are kept on their anticoag or should be kept on their anticoagulation for cataract extraction. Um, certain eye surgeries. Um, have low bleeding risk. And we're talking about not just volume of blood, but the risk of injury or harm should bleeding occur in a small confined space. So maybe for like a vitrectomy or more complicated posterior chamber surgery, you might want to stop the anticoagulation. Um, Dental work. So cleanings, there are patients who are medically complex who may be having dental work in an OR setting with anesthesia support, or they may be going to a, a dentist having work done in the chair. Simple cleanings do not need interruption. Uh, most extractions do not need interruption of anticoagulation. Uh, there's a great consult guys module on this too. I've seen three or more contiguous teeth. So you have a larger wound bed where local hemostasis may be harder to achieve. That's when you start thinking about interrupting anticoagulation. Um, but there's a lot of, yeah, so local hemostasis, either suturing or packing. Um, I don't have a great reference at my fingertip for transexamic acid, but I've seen people using it for local hemostasis. Um, what about see. endoscopy, like upper or lower endoscopies? Probably most endoscopies you don't inter- need to interrupt. I think it's also points to the value of working with the proceduralist and understanding what exactly they're going to do, how extensive biopsies might be. Is this a diagnostic? Is this a screening or is it diagnostic? Um, things like toe amputations, you really distal, small wound bed, local hemostasis can be achieved. We may not be interrupting. Skin biopsies. Probably skin biopsies, Mohs. Mm-hmm. Um, Mohs can probably be performed on therapeutic anticoagulation. So we talked about pacemaker implantation. Um, I think those are the, the biggest ones okay. that come, the biggest minor procedures that come to mind. Yeah. All right. So for, for higher risk, moderate or high risk, those, the, you're probably going to have to stop the anticoagulation for many of those unless, unless your surgeon is telling you it's okay. Correct. And then it gets the question of do you, so if you're going to have to interrupt, the question is, are you going to have to bridge? So for most patients, the data is now saying, do not bridge. Bridging causes more harm than good. There may be select patients, and this is reflected in the guidelines, where the embolic risk is really exceedingly high. 
the, we're talking about the Chaz Vask of seven or the very recent embolic event or stroke. But that also brings up the question, if you've got a patient with a Chaz Vask of seven or a stroke within the last three months, should they even be having surgery anyway? And we're talking elective procedures here. Elective procedures. Uh, and there's, there's good data that if you've had a stroke within three months, you need to, re- you need to recover. Right. Um, I honestly cannot recall the last time I bridged for, for AFib. Mechanical valves are entirely different. Like that's sure. a whole separate ball game. Um, and then if you're thinking about, so the ACC guidelines are, is AFib. There are other guidelines looking at uh, bridging or not bridging in the setting of, of VT. So DVT or pulmonary embolism. I will sometimes bridge these patients if they have a very recent clot and the surgery cannot wait, uh, or they have an active malignancy and, and need to have surgery done and, and, and a recent VTE. Um, but I think we've also moved away from bridging. I think there's a better understanding that a lot of these hypercoagulable states maybe increase first lifetime clot risk, but then kind of reset risk. So it's really the severe thrombophilias so active malignancy, you know, severe APLA that I'm working with hematologists. So often these are the patients who have a continuity hematologist at that point. Then I'm working with them and figuring out if it needs to be a bridge in that setting. Somebody who's had two post-op or two provoked DVTs, I'm not going to bridge them. I, I want to mention this article uh, about VTE and perioperative uh, bridging, uh, if not just because the lead author's name is Baumgartner, which uh, I believe might be the same as a uh, rookie of the year. If I'm not, I, I th- wasn't that the kid's name in rookie of the year? No, ah, someone will know. We'll we'll get an email about it. But <laughs> <laughs> will we? They're <laughs> gonna tweet. This this article was looking at bridging versus not bridging for for VTE, and they actually found that there was no real there was no real difference in incidence of VTE, and of course the bleeding risk was higher for patients who were were bridging. And then what was was confusing to me was that even in the patients who were at the highest risk of venous thromboembolism, they really didn't have a much higher incidence than just the overall population of patients, and uh, but the bleeding risk was actually much higher. And, um, but I, yeah. I, I don't know all the nuances of this one, like how, if, if, how many of those patients were within three months of a recent event or how many of them had kind of antiphospholipid antibody or active cancer, like you were saying. So I, I'm sure this is those kind of cases you might get your hematologist involved as yeah. you were suggesting. Um, that, that's a great article to have at your fingertips. It came out online a few months ago, but I think it was actually in this past week's Green Journal because it, it hit my mailbox. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The American Journal of Medicine. All right. So, so you mentioned, about, yeah, I was going to so say you mentioned bridging. mechanical valves too. So mechanical valves, you're going to bridge still? We're still bridging? We're going to bridge. There's some, there's some data that there are low risk, I'm doing air quotes, low risk patients with aortic valves, uh, mechanical aortic valves, no LV dysfunction, no AFib, and I think no history of stroke who might get by with like a three-day warfarin hold, INR of around 1.5. But, but honestly, those patients are pretty far and few between. And how long are you generally holding warfarin for, for a patient um, before they go to surgery when we're not bridging them? So assuming their INR has been well-maintained and it's in the therapeutic range, kind of entering this perioperative period, I'm holding it for five days. And I'm very explicit. So when you say hold it for five days, I think that still leaves a lot of room for confusion. So someone might go, wait, is my 
first last dose is my last dose five days before or is my first skip dose five days before so I give people a calendar I said this is your last day I want you to skip it for five calendar days and then I want you to come in for your surgery with the warfarin so you're you're the fifth is the fifth day the day of their surgery or is the fifth day the day before their surgery when you when you mark out those five calendar days I usually do fifth day um, like five calendar days between the last dose and the surgery day itself. Okay. And then, so then they get their surgery. All right. So everything we talked about so far, we said, uh, bridging that, that was bridging with warfarin. What about bridging a DOAC? Don't do it. (laughs) Don't bridge the (laughs) DOAC. Don't bridge the DOACs. Um, one of the benefits of the DOACs is that they have a very, very short half-life. And, and the half-life varies between the agents. But this was one of their incredible benefits over Warfarin. Now, one of the counters and some of the, the reason people were slow to adopt them is that there has not been a reversal agent. But again, the half-life is still really short. Um, I once heard a hematologist say they're basically oral enoxaparin, plus or minus. So when the DOACs became more widely available... The plus or minus makes me nervous. Yeah, plus or minus. Um, so when the DOACs really started becoming more widely available in the last few years, we were extrapolating based on half-life and saying, well, the, you shouldn't need to bridge because the window of lack of drug effects should be exceedingly short. And you know, we're only sk- skipping them for probably one or two days beforehand. More clarity was shed on this in, in a good way. Uh, the abstract was released at the ASH meeting last December. So it was um, Ducatus, who's published a lot on this subject. Uh, they released the results of PAUSE, which was the first large trial specifically looking at pre-procedural, pre-surgical management of the DOACs. Um, and they designed a study where they stratified patients based on the risk of bleeding. So it's a high bleeding risk procedure or a low bleeding risk procedure. Stratified patients to the number of days that were being held based on the anticipated blood loss. And they measured drug levels to prove that people were getting down to sub-therapeutic levels of the agents by the time they came in for their surgeries. Uh, and really just confirmed that a short hold of rivaroxaban, abixaban, dabigatran was safe and effective. Right. And they held a little bit longer, I think one day longer in the high-risk group than the low-risk group. And I think something like 90% of patients in the low-risk group had undetectable or insignificant levels of drug and something like 98% in the high-risk group had undetectable levels of drug. Is it important for us to memorize like how long? So for dabigatran versus rivaroxaban versus apixaban, do you memorize that or just look it up? Do you have a source where you just look that up each time? I've actually built a couple of dot phrases for myself in Epic. So I can just, if I'm doing an after visit summary for a patient, I can do a dot phrase for abixaban or rivaroxaban. And those are the ones that I see the most now. I rarely see dabigatran. Um, and it kind of gives me a reminder, this is the number of days I want you to hold it. Dabigatran, the most important thing to remember is renal function, because the hold period is going to be longer, up to four days, potentially, in somebody with impaired renal function. Paul, do you think we're opening ourselves up to liability if we include her dot phrases in our show notes? I mean, it's, I, I, yes. Um. Okay, so we'll, we'll hold off on that then. 
But the takeaway for that is that I've created a system that helps me, a prompt that helps me remember when to tell patients. There's also some great calendars that, again, if you say two days before, what does that imply? Is that the last dose or the first missed dose? And kind of creating a framework for yourself or even a visual for patients. This is your last dose. Skip, skip surgery or skip, skip, skip surgery. Well, there's a lot more to this case, but before we get to that, let's just make sure, because we talked about a lot of things here. Paul, do you want to try to summarize this or do you want me to take it? I usually try to, but... Yep, nope, have at it, buddy. All yours. (laughs) Okay. So the first thing we talked about was bridging. And when we said bridging, we were really talking about bridging warfarin or vitamin K antagonist uh, with something like a low molecular weight heparin. And we said, that's pretty much out now, unless... You know, somebody had a really recent stroke or they're maybe if their Chad's Vasque is like seven or if they have a mechanical heart valve, we will bridge if they have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome and we're just worried about them clotting really quickly, we will bridge. Uh, those were those were some of the main main conditions there for patients who are low risk. And some of those things that you gave were like a cataract surgery, uh, possibly some endoscopies. Um, some dental surgeries or like maybe really distal small surgical sites, we don't even have to hold the warfarin uh, at all. We might even be able to just keep them on anticoagulation. Correct. And then we talked about the DOACs where we are going to hold those for something like one or two days. And it it Mm -hmm. depends slightly based on those. And people create a dot phrase, you know, look them up one time, create a dot phrase. So that way you can kind of have it and you don't have to look it up every time. I like, I like that idea. Paul, am I forgetting anything else that we we talked about here? No, I think I think shockingly you managed to, to include all the high points. So nicely done. Although I'm gonna, she the, the patient in the case did throw out the caveat that she's anticipating a neuraxial anesthesia. Yeah. So how does that change things? So that actually does change things. So the American Society of Regional Anesthesia does have guidelines for anticoagulation monitoring. And the what's the concern again? What's the risk benefit of the hold window? based on risk of clot versus the risk of bleeding. So when you're introducing a catheter um, into the neuraxial space, the the big concern would be a spinal hematoma, which could be catastrophic for a patient. So we do extend the whole uh, period, usually by a day, especially if you're talking about rivaroxaban or abixaban, for a patient on such a DOAC if they're anticipating regional anesthesia, uh, sorry, neuraxial, so spinal or an epidural. Most uh, very commonly, I'm seeing this for hip replacements, knee replacements, but there may be other major surgeries where that that anesthetic strategy is being pursued or being anticipated, um, either to minimize using general anesthesia, so with conscious sedation, or as an adjunct to kind of help with uh, pain control post-op. So sometimes big abdominal surgeries, certain vascular surgeries. Uh, I think I've seen patients having uh, endovascular triple A repairs with epidurals or sedation. Um, I've seen some patients with big pancreatic surgeries like Whipple's. So that gets to being aware of what a surgeon might be planning for a patient. But yes, if she's being told to be aware that she may need a longer hold window, that's that's appropriate. Yeah, and hopefully anesthesia will help us out and let us know in enough time, or, or the surgeon, the anesthesiologist will let us know in enough time, and hopefully anesthesia is aware of these hold guidelines being a little stricter if they're going to be messing around putting a catheter in the epidural space. 
let's let's talk a little bit about in this case uh, the some of the random stuff that this patient was taking. Yeah. She's on adalimumab. That's a monoclonal antibody, and uh, these I, I was actually always intimidated by this, but it seems like you can kind of boil it down. Like for the biologic agents, just like just for the biologic agents, they're saying you just have to hold it. Uh, you know, for one cycle, and then at sometimes towards sometime toward the end of that cycle, you can schedule the surgery. Yeah, Is that your gen- approach? That's generally my approach. Fortunately, so and this was again a big question mark for a long time. Um, there was a joint position paper from um, American College of Rheumatology, and I think it's the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons uh, that came up with guidelines about a year or so that really really delved into this specifically for orthopedic patients. So the patients with rheumatologic diseases who have affected their joints. So like this patient who is having a joint replacement due to end-stage disease from her rheumatoid arthritis. Um, really the biologics, big infection risk, surgical site infection risk, holding at least the dose before. And I got to tell you, most surgeons, especially like orthopedic surgeons, surgeons operating for conditions for which the patient is on this medical therapy, so it may be uh, like a colorectal surgeon seeing somebody for their IBD, a hip and knee surgeon who's operating for rheumatoid arthritis. They're very, very proactive. And they're working with, in my experience, um, working with the patient, working with the prescriber, helping to choose a surgery date where they know they're going to kind of be at trough levels mm-hmm. or be able to time a skipped dose. And the worry here is for prosthetic joint infection, right? So if someone's or, or on, any type of infection, yeah. So if someone's on like a, a once a month agent, they would get their monthly dose, and then the, when it's time for the next dose, instead of the dose, you would get your surgery because you at, at the, in theory they're at a trough level at that time. Correct. Or if somebody's on one of the agents that's dosed weekly or every other week, there may be a, a good argument to just skip a dose and then get them scheduled in that week after the skipped dose. Yeah. So what about the non-biologic DMARDs, like the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs? So most of these agents we can now continue. Uh, and there's even data to continue methotrexate. What I'm asking, and, and then you provided what day of the week she's taking it, if the surgery day is on the dosing day, I ask them to skip it that morning. Or if the, the dosing day is before, and again, this is my this is my practice pattern. If the dosing day is like a day before the surgery, I'll engage in shared decision making and have them think about skipping it or not, depending on how poorly their disease is controlled or what's happened the last time. Um, I once heard somebody say nobody dies of an RA flare, but somebody might be really really miserable, like really uncomfortable. Right. Um, but if her dose is on a Friday and her surgery is on a Thursday. I'm going to have her take it the week before. Um, so the oral agents, uh, sulfasalazine, items like that, I'm going to have people continue because I think of them more as like immunomodulating than immunosuppressant. So that includes azathioprine and mycophenolate, tacrolimus, those kind of things too? I honestly don't see that many patients on those for the rheumatologic disorders right now. Um, if they're on it for transplant, that's an entirely different risk-benefit analysis. Um, but the, the, the guidelines from the ACR, uh, AHKS, do a really great job. They've got a fantastic table that kind of breaks down reasons for use. And I think it even splits off like Sjogren's and lupus and the specific rheumatologic disorders to guide the risk-benefit of, of continuing versus holding agents. 
I think what I'm enjoying about this conversation is I think we spent the proportional amount of time talking about drugs that I would be thinking about. So like I would I would be I would obsess over the DOAC. I would get really excited about the biologics, but what about the ones that I wouldn't even blink at that probably are going to cause problems or maybe not, but like, what about the vitamin E or what about the patient's fish oil? What, what should we be doing with those? Yeah. So you'll see a lot of standard instructions from surgeons that say like, hold your fish oil, hold your vitamin E, hold your herbals for like one to two weeks, sometimes up to a month before surgery. I think the month is probably a little too long if you're thinking about effect on platelet function. Like, those platelets are gone. Right. Um, but fish oil, for a long time, we were holding another fantastic consult guys module um, that dispels, like, the fish oil myth. And then more recent data, I love the name of this trial. It's called the OPERA trial. Um, I think it had originally been designed to study effects of high dose. I think we're talking, like, 8 grams of fish oil load to prevent po- uh, AFib after cardiac surgery. Don't quote me on it. But I think that was the design. And and cardiac surgery is a bloody surgery and did not show higher rates of bleeding or transfusion needs. And then they extrapolated more data. So there was a more recent publication out of the OPERA trial that I think actually showed less bleeding when patients were on Yeah, fish oil. less transfusions. Sure. Yeah, what's so the, fish oil the, load is the recommendation I, is what I'm hearing. Since I just well, looked I, I through think, it today, it was, it was like 8 to 10 grams for the 2 to 5 days preoperatively they started it two to yeah two to five days pre-op and then post-op they were taking two grams of fish oil and there was like less transfusion and bleeding issues in the patients who uh, were on fish oil. Just shocking. Yeah, and I think in the consult guys go into this too that the data that drove the the hypothesis that fish oil is good for cardiovascular health because it impairs platelet function is really flawed data. Right. I was going to ask you which fish oil myth uh, they were dispelling. <laughs> no, it wasn't the bleeding one. It was the other. I think it was like it was like the Greenland, uh-huh. like terrible epidemiology study. Yeah. You know, the, the question would be, so even though the, this opera, this kind of reanalysis of the opera trial showed that there might have been less bleeding, I don't know that I would tell, I, I know that I would not tell anybody to start fish oil uh, perioperatively to decrease the risk of bleeding. And I, and you know, I don't know that there's there's a very narrow, maybe you can argue like that one trial that came out last fall, uh, there's like a narrow indication for patients who's like triglycerides aren't controlled and they're already on high dose statin, blah, blah, blah. And maybe yeah. you, can, you can prescribe this, you know, very specific formulation of fish oil, but I don't, I don't really use fish oil in my practice at this time. Yeah, again, risk benefit. Do I want this in your system? Do I not want this in yeah. your system? For me, it's also a pick your battles. And I'm not trying to say that in an antagonistic way, but if a surgeon has told somebody to stop their fish oil a week before surgery, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go against that. I'm not going to tell them that their surgeon doesn't know what they're talking about or, oh, no, you can put yourself back on it. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save my battles. And again, not to sound antagonistic, but I'm going to save my um, bargaining chips for... Well, we'll t- hopefully talk about soon the antiplatelets, especially aspirin. Okay. Or keeping people on anticoagulation. But if a patient comes in and sees me a day before surgery and says, oh, shoot, I didn't stop it. I forgot to take it out of my pillbox. I'm just taking it because I think it's good for my health. I'm going to reassure them. It's okay. We don't need to cancel or postpone your surgery. There's new data. It's probably not going to make you bleed. Take a deep breath. Just don't take any more. Uh, vitamin E, I have not found compelling data, but I think there's better data that it may impair platelet function, especially at the high doses. So I do tell people to stop their 400 IUs or more. If somebody says, oh, I'm on a multivitamin and there's vitamin E in it, 
I tell them not to worry. Herbals and herbals. There's a the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center has a nice uh, spot. Actually, I I can link to this. We we had mentioned it on a show like way back that that you can look up some of these herbal herbal agents. But in general, I just tell patients to hold them. I guess you might need to look it up. Like if it's the situation you were talking about where it's the day before and they're like, I've been taking this, then then you might want to know if it's something that increases risk of bleeding. Yeah, I think there's bleeding risk. We know some of the herbals like St. John's warts are an incredibly potent cytochrome. Um, it affects the, the cytochrome system. So it's not just bleeding risk, but I'm worried about anti-coag- uh, interaction with the anesthetic agents. All right. So let's close out this case because we have a lot more to get to. Yeah. Now, for, for this woman, what would you uh, what would be your final instructions to her? And then and then Paul can read us the next the next case. All right. So getting back. Um, so I'm going to have her um, just reading what we went through in order. I'm going to have her continue her methotrexate unless her dosing day happens to be the surgery day. We're going to skip at least a dose of her adalibumab. Um, we didn't talk about her amiodarone, but that's one of these common sense. You're on an antiarrhythmic, I'm going to keep you on your antiarrhythmic. And that's supported by the ACC guidelines, the 2014 guidelines. We're going to, I'm going to have her do a, a three-day calendar day hold of her abixaban because she's expecting neuraxial anesthesia. So if her surgery is on a Friday, she's going to hold it Thursday, Wednesday, and Tuesday with her last dose Monday night. I'm going to just have her stop her fish oil and her vitamin E because that just kind of bundles all the herbals, all the nutraceuticals, all the over-the-counters in one. And I'm going to focus on the pharmacologic um, prescription agents that probably have the highest risk that I want to most tightly manage. And I'm going to be very explicit. Um, so I'm going to tell her what her last day is, not just a number of days. I'm like, this is your calendar date relative to your surgery date. And for the morning of surgery, I'm going to say NPO, nothing to eat or drink after midnight. When you wake up before you drive yourself to the hospital, I want you to take your amiodarone. I don't think she was on any other morning pills, but like I want you to take your amiodarone with a little bit of water before you drive to the hospital for your surgery. Beautiful. All right. On to case two. Um, if anything, an even more painful name. You guys are just trying to hurt me now. This is Mr. DAPT, who is a 70-year-old man with newly diagnosed pancreatic cancer with a head of pancreas mass diagnosed after presenting with obstructive jaundice. He is scheduled for a Whipple. His medical history is significant for coronary disease, status post, drug loading stent placement for symptomatic obstructive CAD, not ACS, 11 months ago. He is on aspirin, 81 milligrams, clopidogrel, 75 milligrams, and he was told that he should take his clopidogrel for 12 full months. He's also on resuvastatin, 40 milligrams at night, and carvedilol, 25 milligrams twice daily. He has well-controlled diabetes with an A1C of 6.9% on metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice daily, and clinoglifosin. Also, for both renal protection given his diabetes and for central hypertension, he takes lisinopril 10 milligrams every morning. In addition to wondering what to do with his DAPT, um, meaning his dual antiplatelet therapy, not his name, and his diabetes medications, he says his neighbor told him that Dr. Internet search browser said to stop his statin a week before surgery. So we have all kinds of questions kind of coming out of this case is what's to be stopped and what should be continued, but uh, we'll start with the biggie. Um, well, how? <laughs> just to answer the simple question, how do you manage aspirin perioperatively, Avi? In a nutshell, I managed it in an incredibly patient-centered, patient-individualized, and professional manner. Um, I actually, <laughs> Fantastic. This is, I think, aspirin, anticoagulation, you're going to stop unless you really don't, don't care and you're going to continue it. 
Aspirin is where it really gets down to the nitty gritty and really comes down to reaching across the aisle and advocating for your patient, but also helping your surgeon or your proceduralist feel heard about their concerns about bleeding. Ha. Huh. So I talked about the sort of the wealth of information that's expanded on the anticoagulants and bridging in the last few years. It's been a little bit more head spinning for aspirin. So, um, you know, again, theoretical concern, are we protecting patients from cardiovascular events, including MI, MACE, major adverse cardiac events, even stroke, or are we causing more harm from the bleeding? And, and everyone thinks like, you know, aspirin makes you bleed. And that's one of the complications of long-term abuse, even for primary prevention. So a couple of years ago, POISE-2 was published, which was a randomized controlled trial looking at aspirin before surgery or not. Did not show difference in cardiovascular outcomes for all comers, did show higher bleeding risk. And one of the hypotheses was that even if we are prevent, uh, protecting patients from cardiovascular events, we cause bleeding. We know post-op transfusions are associated with risk of MI. We know hypotension. You know, are, were patients bleeding so much that they got hypotensive and then they had their supply demand in STEMI? And then a few years later, and, then, and this was the banter. And so people were like, oh, gosh, you know, if you have coronary disease, I, I think I'm now supposed to tell you to hold your aspirin, which you know, people felt uncomfortable doing. But the data suggested that was safe. There was then a PCI subgroup analysis. Um, and from what I understand, like from the historical context, they had not anticipated that so many patients who had a PCI or who had a stent in place would have been enrolled in the, in the large P, um, POIS2 group. So that's why the PCI subgroup data came out after the fact. Um, these patients, much better effect, uh, protective effect from cardiovascular events if aspirin was continued no difference in bleeding risk. So then everyone's head swung in the other direction and said, oh, so if you have a stent, we need to keep you on your aspirin unless the bleeding risk is so high. And again, it's not just volume of bleeding, but it might be bleeding in a small confined space, so neurosurgery. Um, and this is really driven, I think it really driven practice. Um, it, it certainly drives my practice pattern at Cashlack Northwest. Um, and this is, again, a reach across the aisle. Many surgeons, I will tell you, do not fear aspirin like we think they fear aspirin. Um, and many surgeons that I work with will say, yes, please protect them from a cardiovascular event. Um, don't even stop to ask me, yes, continue it no matter what. Um, and there are certain surgeons that I don't even need to talk to. If you're having a craniotomy, I'm stopping your aspirin. If you're having a huge spine surgery, uh, if you're having a TERPs, so TERPs are bloody surgeries. Um, these prostate surgeries, um, but like hip replacements, knee replacements, um, pancreatic surgeries, if you have a stent in place, I'm going to strongly advocate to keep you on your aspirin. Um, and the, the 2014 ACCHA guidelines to 2016 more dedicated antiplatelet guidelines from the ACCHA, the European guidelines, really now support this. Now, the other big change with aspirin in the last few years has been data analyzing the newer generation of the drug-eluting stents. It used to be, wait a year, wait a year, wait a year, try not to stop the dual antiplatelet for a drug-eluting stent until you hit 12 months. What changed between the 2014 periop guidelines and then the 2016 antiplatelet guidelines, which have a section on perioperative management, is that that window reduced down to six months. So that also is a big change for patients for staying on their dual antiplatelets. So if I get you to six months with a drug-eluting stent, 
in the absence of ACS, where I want you on your clopidogrel for a year, I feel comfortable stopping half of the dual antiplatelet, but I'm going to continue on aspirin. And then for the drug-eluting sense, the, the gray zone window where you really need to get granular with the risk-benefit is that three- to six-month window. So no surgery for three months. And then if we're in that three- to six-month window, we really need to figure out the risk-benefit. Why are we talking about surgery now versus waiting a few more months? So that, you know, he's, he's got a malignancy-related surgery. He's well out of that six-month window. Um, so I'm comfortable stopping clopidogrel at this time. But if we were at the four-month window... I'd be having a more nuanced risk-benefit discussion. So we, we can't talk you down to a month at this point? Well, if it was a bare metal stent, I think that'd be different. And, and But sometimes you don't know when you're putting in a stent if they will end up declaring a surgical indication. Um, I mean, how many patients have you taken care of over the years who have their unstable angina or they have their, their chest pain, um, they get risk stratified, they proceed with angiogram, they get put on dual antiplatelets, and then suddenly they're manifesting their GI malignancy because they're having melana. And you didn't know that that cancer was there. And But sometimes I see the interventional cardiologist being very intentional, knowing that somebody has a surgical indication that is time-sensitive and deliberately putting in a bare metal rather than a drug-eluting, depending on the anatomy. All right. There's a lot to summarize from from what we've done <laughs> here, and I want to make sure I want to make sure that I know it because I, I I'm I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the audience who hasn't uh probably hasn't done much pre reading and uh and even though I have I'm still trying to make sure that I I know what's going on. So the first thing we talked about was continuing aspirin perioperatively, and um, this is just for. This is for just like kind of all comers, not necessarily someone without a stent, right? That was the first case, yeah. this poise to the original trial. Some patients had, in that had a stent. But anyway, just for all comers, continuing aspirin does not necessarily help anything. Correct. Okay. So we, we certainly wouldn't start someone on aspirin perioperatively, uh, uh, you know, at least for, for that indication for primary prevention and um, continuing it if they're on it for primary prevention is not necessary. Correct. All right. Now, be, go on. Some patients have, there's a lot of vascular surgeons who want their people, their patients on an antiplatelet agent, but you can probably argue that if you're having vascular surgery, it, you're not talking about primary prevention. Right. Then we're talking about somebody that has at least, you know, uh, clinical, corn, uh, clinical um, atherosclerotic disease. Correct. All right. So now if a patient has stable ischemic heart disease and they're just on aspirin for, you know, for stable angina, in those cases, what should we continue it perioperatively? Is that clear or is that? If if they don't have a stent. They don't have a stent. They're just on it for, I, you know, they're on medical therapy, aspirin and some, you know, statin and some blood pressure medicines for stable ischemic heart disease. The way that I um, look at the data, look at the guidelines, if they don't have a stent, I'm going to cautiously hold their aspirin. Okay. Now, for patients who have a stent for stable ischemic heart disease, um, uh, if, if You're it's You're doing an, great, buddy, by the way. I just want it, to jump in here. Okay. Thanks, Paul. So stable ischemic heart disease, the stent's old. It's over a year old. No brainer. Continue the aspirin. Is that... All right. And now for... Now, now is where it gets a little dicey. Okay. Now someone has a stent because they had some sort of an acute coronary syndrome, either an NSTEMI or a STEMI. And they're within 
they're within like three to six months. That's a gray area. You got to talk with cardiology and the surgeon and Uh sort of figure out, are you going to continue aspirin? Are you going to continue both? What are you going to do? So as it stands, the, the, the 2016 ACC antiplatelet guidelines just talk about aspirin in the setting of stenting without ACS. So I think if somebody's had an MI, we know that post-op complications are still pretty high. Like you've got to kind of get this time away from your car, your MI okay. to have sort of a reset or you know, baseline risk of cardiac complications. So if you've had an MI, I want to try to get you to wait as long as you can anyway. Okay. But if you've had stenting without ACS... If I can get you to six months, it's going to be fantastic. And I'm going to feel much more comfortable stopping the clopidogrel part of the dual antiplatelet, but stay on your aspirin unless the bleeding risk is really prohibitively high. And if they've, if they've had an ACS, then, then uh, you're trying to get them as close to that, that one year of of dual antiplatelet therapy as you can. As, As close as I can. All right. Paul, am I missing any use cases here? I, I was trying, like, I'm trying to be systematic about it. It's just, it, it gets, this is, this is why this one is the, the one that drives everybody crazy. No, I, I, I think that we did pretty good. So we had on aspirin <laughs> without stent. We had on aspirin with stent, not for ACS. We had on aspirin with stenting for ACS. So I feel like we've covered most of our bases. I'll tell you the, the challenge that I often see and it's not infrequent. Uh, someone who has had stenting, the stents are now occluded and they've proceeded to cabbage. And I don't see a clear precedent in the literature, but you would think if those stents are occluded, then aspirin is not going to help keep those. I mean, they're not patent stents to try to keep patent with aspirin on board. But technically, the guidelines might say if you are if you have a stent, you should stay on aspirin. And does um, anything change if there's more than one stent or if there does stent length matter do we care about that does that change any way that you think about this at all um and that's that's conversations i've had with interventional cardiologists too that they are so again quantify qualify the known conditions there are features of stents that make them higher risk so the longer stents um multiple contiguous stents where they're overlapping uh like stent jail or where they kind of put these like strutted stents like across an ostium yeah. Um, so those have a higher risk of thrombosis. What instructions do you give the patient if you're telling them to hold aspirin or clopidogrel, one of those, or one of its kind of other other drugs in that class? How how long do you tell the patient to hold it if you're going to tell them to hold it? Uh, it's about the five to seven day window. Um, again, you're trying to you know aspirin irreversibly inhibits platelets. Platelet half life should be about seven days. Um, I've seen five days for clopidogrel. I've seen seven days for aspirin. I've seen vice versa for both. And for the regional anesthesia case, uh, they're getting regional anesthesia and, you know, an epidural for a surgery. What do you tell them? Um, so you can be on aspirin for re- for neuroaxial anesthesia. I forget, um, off the top of my head, what it is for clopidogrel, okay. but aspirin is not a barrier. So let's move on with this case because I do want to get to there's there's a lot of stuff tucked in here. The statin is this an easy answer? Do we continue it? <laughs> it should be an easy answer, and it is an easy answer that if you are on a statin, it is protective, and you should stay on it. It's in the guidelines. Um, there is very very old lore. It's not even old lore buried uh, on the internet. Um, so I think it was actually like not as far back as 2011, 2012 that there were guidelines that said 
actually no, it can't be that recently. Um, but there is stuff floating out there that says you should you should hold your statin before surgery because of the theoretical risk of myopathy or hepatic injury um, from anesthetic agents. That is so um, wrong. Uh, we've learned a lot. <laughs> we've had a lot of studies on vascular, you know, cardiovascular benefit of statins since then. Oh, I found it. It is 2002. Um, it was an ACC AHA National Heart Lung. Nah. Blood and, Institute. And Blood Institute <laughs> Clinical Advisory. And it actually, if you if you uh, internet search browser the package inserts for the statins, it actually will still say um, like consider holding temporarily before major surgery. So I, patients every once in a while come in and say, "Oh, I typed this into an internet search browser, so I stopped it." Paul, I'm leaving space for you for for whatever you want to talk next on. Why well, I think there's, I mean, the beta blockers is, yeah, should, should we start them <laughs> perioperatively? Where are our heads at with that? And then I feel like the ACE and the ARB is also, we have to be careful because that could probably be an entire podcast as well. But why don't, why don't we start with the beta blockers? Um, should we continue someone who's on it? And if someone is not, and we think that they're quote high risk, is that someone for whom we should start beta blockers? And how do you, how do you kind of think about that? So beta blockers, if you're on it, class one indication, ACC guidelines, continue it. Um, so the, the original POISE study was the study that really dampened enthusiasm for starting preoperative beta blockers. You can argue that it was like 100 of metope sucks started the day of surgery, but the data and it's in, in the meta-analyses and, and there's a whole sorted past with the beta blocker studies and like the ones that were like withdrawn and it just gets messy. Oh my God. Um, so... I turned to the 2014 ACC HA guidelines. There's a great section there. There's then a focused beta blocker position paper as well. Basically, if somebody is really, really high risk, you can consider starting them at least in advance of surgery. So don't start it the day of. I like to give it a week. So the risk is hypotension, stroke, adverse effects, especially an elderly patient who may not tolerate it well. Start low, titrate it up slowly if you're going to do it. But if you look at the guidelines, it says consider it in, in patients having major vascular surgery, consider it if they've got more than three or more RCRI risk factors. I got to tell you, most of the patients that might come through my pre-op clinic who would meet those indications, they're already on a beta blocker. Right, right. They really are. Um, you know, if you're, on, if you're on it for other reasons, if you have AFib, continue it. If you have migraines on propranolol, continue it. If you've got uh, cirrhosis, cirrhosis with varices on natalol, continue it. Public speaking uh, anxiety. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I honestly can't remember the last time I initiated a beta blocker. Um, I maybe reinforce it for a patient who was having some adherence challenges. And it's like, well, I just kind of stopped taking it. I didn't feel like picking it up at the pharmacy. And I was like, no, no, no. I really want you to go pick it up. And, and maybe we're going to reintroduce it half your dose and give it a few days. But I, I honestly don't remember the last time I initiated it de novo. Gotcha. All right. And I'm going to take a deep breath. And then what about the ACEs and the ARB? Should I be holding them, not holding them? Will it kill a patient if they remain on their ACE? Um, I, I, I'm in the pro team hold. Uh, I think the data on intraoperative hypotension, intraoperative, more difficult anesthetic, anesthesia management. So the background is there's there's compelling data that ACEs and ARBs on day of surgery make 
blood pressure cause intraoperative hypotension, which is then potentially linked with MI, adverse cardiac events, renal injury, acute kidney injury. Um, I think the data is good enough to hold it for a day, but then have a very proactive strategy for reintroducing it. So one of the most recent papers, um, which is Journal of Hospital Medicine, um, small N, but was, I think, the first really good RCT, showed a very small, like, single-digit number needed to treat or number needed to hold um, to improve intra-op management, and then the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm for, like, post-op hypotension and post-op hypertension was identical. So basically, if I say hold it and then keep a very close eye on blood pressure post-op. So this is like a great example where you know that like morning med pass is like probably before rounds. And by the time you get to the patient, they've already gotten all their morning meds and you really wanted to hold their furosemide and their ACE because their creatinine had bumped. Like I would say don't immediately resume it post-op. Assess the patient on post-op day one and then consider if you're going to resume it. Love it. What, and you, you mentioned the diuretics there. Hold on the day of surgery, right? Hold on the day of, yeah. They're NPO. They're not eating and drinking. They're going to have whatever fluid ships interoperatively. I have them hold it. Um, I have them hold most of the, like, really hold the oral hypoglycemics. Um, you can make an argument that some of them improve insulin, you know, improve glucose resistant. They're not really hypoglycemic, but the metformin, sulfonylureas, I'm going to have people skip when they're NPO. The newer diabetic agents, these get kind of fun. Um, so the agent you mentioned, the, the glyphosate, there is really interesting data on the risk of euglycemic DKA for these drugs in general uh, and in the perioperative period, especially with surgeries, with prolonged NPO status for fluid shifts, um, GI procedures, bariatric surgery. Um, so there's new, so there's case reports, and then there's a recent article that really said it needs to be skipped. And I tell people to hold it for two to three days before surgery. And then I throw a caveat in my note that says, really don't resume until you're reliably taking PO intake afterwards. Um, and I would think most of these patients on these agents are going to be counseled about the risk anyway. So I engage the patient and say, look, this is the risk. This is what you need to do. Kind of keep an eye on this when you go home. And, and especially handling with the GLP-1 agents? Um, you know, I, I, what I think is interesting, I'll, what I think is interesting about those, Avi, is that the the main side effect when you read, because we're, we're thinking about starting to use these in the hospital, and I think it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the big barrier is, okay, maybe it causes more nausea and GI upset. Yeah. Yeah. Versus like, I mean, you know, if people make this point all the time about uh, newer drugs coming out, like the insulin causes hypoglycemia, you know, would we want to use that in the hospital when people are NPO and maybe already feeling nauseous and stuff? So I, I just think that, I think that those are probably going to start to be used in the hospital in the near future. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'd, I'd be, I'd love to hear what you think about those. And then to go back to the metformin as well. Um, I feel like the some of the articles I was was looking at said like you could continue metformin if you really wanted to. Yeah, um, I've I've seen more banter in that regard. I'm at this point I'm still having people skip it for one day. I've sometimes seen instructions to skip it for forty eight hours unless somebody's getting like a contrast load, like for endovascular procedures. I don't really see compelling data to hold it for that long. Okay. But some of the newer agents, you know, the weekly injectables, I'm going to have people continue because I don't want them to be poorly controlled for a week. Yeah. Um, 
And then some of the other newer oral agents, I kind of go, most of them, I just have them skip on the morning of, like just the morning of, rather than hold for any extended period. But the glyphosins, I do have people hold for for at least a few days. Yeah. And how are you telling people to handle their insulin in the perioperative period? So I'm telling people to dose reduce their long acting insulin, usually by about 50%, which is supported in the literature. Um, I'm also, again, you know, quantify, quantify the, the comorbid conditions. If somebody is running really hyperglycemic, I may not have them dose reduced to 50%, maybe 80%, maybe even 100%. Um, you know, I, I don't want somebody coming in at that blood sugar of like 100 to you know, low 100s. I'm sort of extrapolating that like, let's aim for that 140 to 180-ish range, kind of looking at the other guidelines on goal CBGs in the hospital setting. Um, if somebody's been running hypoglycemic and they really need their dose reduced anyway, I might reduce down more than the 50, like more than 50%. Um, the mixed insulins get a little tricky because they have short, short acting insulin on board. So sometimes we're saying, you know, don't take your 70, 30, the morning of surgery, but they're going to need something in the PACU where they're going to need a CBG check as soon as they check into the PACU. Right. And if they're in the hospital, you if they're on a mix, you can swap out a long acting or an intermediate acting for if they're on the NPH mix, you can give them just the plain NPH in the morning instead of the, the mix. Yeah. And p- pumps scare people. Pumps are easy. Like come in on your pump uh, and then you know, figure out an intra-op plan. Take people off their pump and put them on an insulin drip and use your hospital protocol for drips. Uh, consult endocrinology, figure out what your hospital protocol, what the CASHLAC hospital protocol for insulin pump self-management versus uh, like physician-led or clinician management is. Uh, but those are the ones that I, I, pumps are easy in my yeah. mind. So the diet, so for diabetes, it, it's kind of simple. I mean, so you, metformin, maybe that one is like a plus minus whether or not you continue it, but definitely sulfonylurea is you're holding, the glyphosins, the SGL, which are the SGLT2 inhibitors you're holding. Uh-huh. And for GLP-1s, if it's a weekly injection, they can take it. Um, if it's the day of, those are probably other ones that we don't really, they're low-risk hypoglycemia, but we don't really know yet. So yeah. it, it, depending on if they're, if they're having some sort of GI issue or GI surgery, maybe you don't mess around with them. That would be my thinking, but that's just like... Uh, I, I have no experience with them in the hospital, but usually patients are not are not yeah. taking them at this point. Correct. Um, all right. So for this case, do you want to wrap it up and we can go on to our, our final case? Yeah. So for this gentleman, uh, I'm going to have him stay on his aspirin. If I don't know his surgeon well, I'm going to reach out to a surgeon and confirm that this that they're comfortable with this plan. But again, advocate for the patient, explicitly reference the guidelines or potentially a hospital policy statement if I need to, but do it in a professional way. I am going to stop his clopidogrel because he's out of six months uh, and approaching a year. He's going to, I'm going to remind him to stay on the statin. And sometimes I put this in writing, like do not stop this medication. I'm going to have them stay on the beta blocker and take morning of surgery. Uh, I'm going to have them skip metformin day of, I'm going to tell them to skip the canaglyphosin uh, for two to three days before surgery and I'm going to have them skip the lisinopril the morning of surgery. Paul, you want to take us home here with the last case? I sure do. 
Let's talk about Ms. G.B. Stone. You'll never guess what surgery she's going to have. <laughs> this is a 35-year-old woman who's scheduled for laparoscopic cholecystectomy for a symptomatic cholelithiasis. Her past medical history includes bipolar depression, and she's been stable on lithium. That's important. She also has a history of opioid use disorder uh, with history of IV heroin use. She is currently in recovery and has been for five years with the aid of Suboxone, and she maintains a close relationship with her buprenorphine prescriber, who is also her PCP, as well as a therapist. Um, the patient also has history of HIV, and she is on uh, antiretroviral therapy regimen. She has a CD4 count in the 400s and a consistently undetectable viral load. She also has hypothyroidism. She's on 75 micrograms of levothyroxine daily. Um, incidentally, you're seeing her five days before her surgery, and she's nervous because she accidentally took 600 milligrams of ibuprofen this morning for a mild headache. So why don't we start with the patient's concern, and then we can move on to our own concerns. Should we be <laughs> excited or upset about her NSAID use? I'm not going to get too excited about the NSAIDs in a patient with normal renal function. Again, and we're going to talk about lithium, and I'm going to get all excited to talk about her lithium. <laughs> um, really cool article in Annals a few years ago, basically did platelet function assays on healthy volunteers who got a, and it wasn't like a huge dose. I think it was like 600 or 800 ibuprofen, and platelet function returned to normal within 24 hours. So the whole, like, skip your NSAIDs for t 7 to 14 days, like, again, this is the reassurance, like I talked about with the fish oil. If she says, oh, shoot, and I'm going to say, it's okay, just don't take any more. Now, NSAIDs and lithium for long-term use, she should probably get some counseling. She shouldn't be taking any NSAIDs in general. But I'm going to reassure her right here, right now. Um, I love this case because, one, it gets away from all the cardiovascular meds. And I think it also brings in the pearl that, like, it's not just about the medications and it's not just about the conditions someone's taking the meds for that it talks about, it brings in the psychosocial implications of med changes that you're not just, Oh, just stop your aspirin or stop your anticoagulant. Sometimes telling somebody I'm going to stop, or I'm going to give you advice on something that makes you feel stable mentally can be incredibly nerve wracking. Um, so I'm going to start by talking about her bup and I'm, I'm so glad that there's more, conversations about like bup is in the vernacular now yeah so theoretical concern poor you know with the antagonist portion of uh, you know, the bup nal naloxone that you would have very very difficult post-op pain control and we were telling people to stop it to hold it for two or three days and i gotta tell you i saw so many patients who were terrified of relapsing it's not just oh i'll i won't be in pain because you can give me oxycodone afterwards patients were terrified of relapsing mm -hmm. um, and being very very proactive with that Lots of case reports, more and more mounting data, new study, uh, like great position paper that's out fairly recently, continue it. Um, looking at the pharmacology, if you have an opiate that has a high affinity for the mu receptor, you can overcome the blockade. Fentanyl, hydromorphone. So I don't know about, you know, Cashlack, non-Northwest, but like Cashlack Northwest, like we have a lot of protocols, like avoid the hydromorphone, avoid the IV, you know, try to get them on other narcotics first or non-narcotics, this is a really good example of using the hydromorphone in the, in the short term, in a controlled manner, and keeping people on their bup. Um, so I'm telling all my patients on Suboxone, uh, or bup naltrexone, to stay on it going into their surgery. Now, they may end up coming off of it if post-op pain control is a little bit more difficult. This is the value of really making sure that, you know, they've got an appointment on their books with their prescriber or their counselor or their clinic, like in that immediate post-op period to kind of check in, see how they're doing with like additional analgesia on board and just 
surgery is mentally and physically stressful. So if somebody's like in a stable addiction recovery plan, I just want them to have that kind of big picture support anyway. So that's, that's one of my soapboxes. One of the tips Paul and I got from a, a past guest was that if if somebody is, let's say you have this person on twice a day, uh, bup, um, like eight eight milligrams, you could, or so, yeah, eight milligrams twice a day, you could split them to like four milligrams four mm-hmm. times a day, or they could be on eight milligrams three times a day, something like that to try to kind of space out the so they're not just getting the opioid sort of cravings knocked out. They're also uh-huh. getting the pain relief from the beep. Yeah. And then if if you are going to have to use medication to treat their pain on top of it, it's just going to have to be higher doses. I, I don't, you know, I'm very interested in this topic. I, I haven't had many cases yet where I've had the chance to try this out. So I don't know, Avi, have you, have you had any patients in the hospital where they've been stable on their bup? dose and they've been taking that around the clock, but the pain control is not adequate. So they're getting IV doses on top of it of something like a hydromorphone. Um, I think so. I don't do a lot of inpatient post-op, but yeah, certainly just doing inpatient care. Um, you know, there are models for inpatient addiction medicine services. So I've certainly had patients that are, I'm consulting both like the anesthesia pain service and the addiction medicine service. And we're all working together to kind of make a very patient centered plan. There's so much more momentum with non-narcotic analgesia, especially post-op anyway, that I'm, I'm optimistic where the next five, 10 years will go with this in terms of keeping patients safe after surgery. Let's, let's all hope that IV acetaminophen is, uh, becomes more widely available. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the sheer joy and gasp that you did at the concept of IV acetaminophen <laughs> just made my entire night. Um, so what else is she on that's actually um, either like a quote-unquote air quotes no-brainer or a well-kept secret? So HIV on antiretroviral therapy, keep patients on it. Same thing to transplant medications. The risk of interrupting a dose could be catastrophic. Um, and that's going to be something to take when they're MPO in the morning of surgery. Lithium. I get really passionate about talking about lithium. Um, I promised my husband I would throw this in here. <laughs> I was telling him last night about the show prep. And he's like, just talk about the TSA. And I said, what? And he's like, lithium don't fly. I said, what? <laughs> he's like, you can't bring lithium on a plane, like lithium batteries. So... <sighs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Lithium. Wow. He's don't... really, he... <laughs> that is a high level. Sorry, uh, Paul. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's like a third level pun that still hurts. <laughs> sorry. Lithium with rare exception, I am stopping before surgery. Other antidepressants, uh, I'm keeping, um, SSRIs, SNRIs. I'm keeping people on, even though there's weird data about platelet inhibition and maybe bleeding risk. Um, MAOIs, which I almost never see, you got to stop. They are dangerous with anesthesia, but very, very few patients are on the MAOIs anymore. Lithium. Oh, what a cool, crazy drug. Um, Really, really wonky pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. Like this drug gets mucked up in and around the time of surgery. Narrow therapeutic index, like crazy long half-lives that can be hard to predict if somebody's kind of like seemingly at steady state with a chronic dose. So a couple of things to keep in mind. 
Patients may have subclinical um, nephrogenic, nephrogenic DI, diabetes insipidus. They may do a really good job of compensating for their polyuria. And then when they're NPO or they're intubated or they um, have like a sort of poor PO intake after their surgery, it gets unmasked. Um, and suddenly they're like hypernatremic and like volume down. And it's just they're this was their steady state. Now it's unmasked. Um, you know, acute lithium toxicity can be fatal. It's an urgent indication for dialysis. Like we're not talking about the like o- intentional overdose. We're talking about this sort of like more chronic toxicity where you're at, like your tissues are just saturated by lithium. And I think like your bones even get like saturated by lithium. And if there's like any change with renal function and GFR and effective circulating volume, like you can suddenly be in like a lithium toxic state. Uh, and you have more of the like neurologic manifestations than than like the GI manifestations, but like hallucinations and tremors and fasciculations and delirium um, and electrolyte abnormalities. So like lithium can get, and there are case reports in the literature, um, definitely with the bariatric surgery population. I'm trying to think other patient populations, um, but I'm having people skip lithium for a couple of days. And then again, like analogous to the canagliflozans, not resuming it until somebody is really like taking adequate normal PO intake, which may be a couple of days post-op. Um, and I, again, like they're love, like they're just, there's so much lithium in their body. They should not have breakthrough symptoms. Like MAOIAs, you may have somebody who is like actually feeling that they're not on the drug. I think lithium um, is one of the, things we just, I didn't know about it until a couple of years ago and I kind of had an eye-opening moment um, and had heard, had heard about it at a lecture previously. If somebody's having really, really minor day surgery, you know, they may be NPO for a few hours. They shouldn't have a lot of fluid shifts. So carpal tunnel, cataract, endoscopy. I, I'm just going to maybe have them skip it the day of, but also then counsel them. Like if you're not eating and drinking when you get home, like you're a little nauseous after anesthesia, like, just be aware of skipping a dose or two. Well, I think I think we went through most of the stuff here. The, I think the only other pa- medicine this patient was on was levothyroxine, which I imagine we're just going to continue them on that. We're going to continue. Lithium is actually one of the few times I do see if there are recent thyroid function pa- tests on file. So lithium, I'm making sure I've got a creatinine. I'm making sure I've got a sodium. And I'm off sometimes actually checking thyroid function because of just appropriate monitoring. So if she's on levothyroxine and on lithium, I'm part of my question is going to, or your pre-op question list is going to be when's the last time you had your thyroid function checked. But otherwise I would continue that medication. So Avi, do you want to wrap up this case and then uh, I'll see if uh, Paul has any more questions before we get to your take home points? Yeah. So I think we've sort of alluded to most of hers, but we're going to keep her on her bup. Um, we're going to, her buprenorphine dot locks, her suboxone. We're going to continue her antiretroviral regimen, whatever that med package is. I want to have her take her, and I'm going to have her take them both on the morning of surgery. I want to have her take her levothyroxine on the morning of surgery. Um, and I'm going to have her skip her lithium for at least two or three days before surgery. And I'm going to reassure her that that single dose of ibuprofen was fine, but to not <laughs> take any more and to probably talk to her primary care doc about avoiding it if she's on lithium. Paul, do you have any final questions here? I do not. That was a magical summary. All right. So Avi, 
I know there's there, there's tons more. I think we did a really good job of like getting to a lot of it. I know there's there's lots we more. A lot. We could we could definitely do more perioperative shows in the future. But can you give some take home? What are your favorite take home points from this one that you want to leave the audience with? I think t- favorite take homes. Uh, don't underestimate the importance of a really accurate, detailed med rec as a as a component of a patient centered preoperative risk assessment. Um, know that patients and referring surgeons can get very nervous about what to do with with medications. Um, I think one of the biggest questions patients come in to see me with pre is, what do I do with my meds? I don't know what I should stop or not. So use this as a chance to educate and counsel and reassure patients um, that you really are providing safe, individualized care for them. Um, and then um, you know, guidelines exist. I think giving yourself a structure to go through in a stepwise fashion, you know, thinking about each med one at a time, take, don't take, do I need to hold for an extended period? will kind of ground you and avoid that kind of head spinning of, oh my gosh, I don't know what I should do with this medication. You know, uh, Avi, I think, I think that's a great summary. Uh, should we go to the outro, Paul? Avi, you want to hang out for the outro? I'd love to. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Strong work. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do so, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for the episode. She does it all, Dr. Avio Glasser as well as to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Avital Yehudit Oglasser. And good night. Are we just, Paul, wait, we're going to just ignore the middle name? I think that's, uh, that may be the best middle, <laughs> that may be the best middle name we've, we've oh, gotten I've on the so show. I've been so waiting for this. <laughs> Every time I hear your outro, I'm like, oh. I'm so glad I got you to stay for the outro so we can get the middle name. (laughs) Okay, so I'm behind on on Avi podcast appearances. (laughs) Anywhere else I should be looking. Be on WTF I'm, in, I'm in Mr. Rogers' book, one of them. That's what? not a podcast, but it's yeah. I'm in one of Mr. Rogers' books. Like the the one, like, like the, the guy like that I grew up Mr. watching, like his yeah. neighbor. Really? I'm in I'm in one of his books. As a child, were you a child yeah. actor? No, 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 not an actor. Um, it's called uh, Dear Mr. Rogers. Does it ever rain in your neighborhood? And it's an anthology of letters that were written to him, and then like oh. him talking about like different themes and the importance of like writing back. Like he was, he wrote back. Um, so I wrote him a letter when my dog died when I was like six and a half and that letter made the book. This what? is amazing. This should be the <laughs> podcast. What are we doing with perioperative <laughs> medicine nonsense? And I, okay. Humble brag, not humble brag. So my mom is in childhood education and she met like his educational coordinator, like at a conference or something. So they struck up a correspondence and we met, we met them. Like we went out to Pittsburgh to visit family friends when I was like a sophomore in high school and we met him. 
Like I got to meet the puppets. Wow. I got to see the sets. Oh my God. Like Zen, like, like walk in a room, like Zen, like presence. Oh my God. This is definitely going in the outro. Yeah, oh, the yeah. Post outro. <laughs> oh 